Well, good morning, everybody. I, man, I told you I knew we were tired, so I'm going to let that slide this morning. But I'm glad, I'm glad to be here with you all this morning. I'm glad to be kicking off with you the Advent season. I know that you've probably heard by now. I know you're at least four Christmas movies deep at this point. I know you know what season it is. If you're my wife, you're a month's worth of Christmas movies deep at this point. We didn't even make it through Halloween before she put on National Lampoons. Like, I'm just saying. We are officially in the Advent season. Some of you are looking at me like, Pastor, you keep saying this word Advent. What the heck does that mean? All the Advent means is arrival. It means arrival. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a season where we celebrate the arrival of Christ, both that already came and that which is yet to come. When I think about the Advent season, when I think about what Jesus's arrival meant, I'm reminded of a flight that I used to take when I was a teenager. Um, my father, as many of you know, used to serve uh, in missions for many years. And uh, as a teenager, I got the opportunity uh, to fly several times to, to South America and to be a part of the work that God was doing there. And I remember specifically uh, the flight to, to Lima, Peru. We would always get there late at night. And I don't know, have, has anybody ever flown like late at night? Have you ever been thousands of feet in the air late at night, right? A few of you have taken a flight before. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad that some of you are with me, right? A few of you ha uh, can, can make reference to this then, is that when you take a flight and you take a flight late at night, what does it look like when you're thousands of feet in the air? What does it look like? It's just dark. Ain't nothing to see. You open the, the little slidey window things, and you think, like, oh, like they tended the windows. No, it's just nothing there. It's just nothing. It's just nothing. And the whole flight from Atlanta, Georgia, to Lima, Peru, at night, is just nothing for seven hours. There's just nothing. It's just dark until you get over the city of Lima until you get over specifically the airport and you just see spots of light. And then you see two rows of light. And when you see those lights, when you've been sitting on that plane in nothing for seven plus hours, not able to sleep because they told you Dramamine works, but it doesn't. Benadryl does, but you got to wake up eventually, and so that's a bad idea. NyQuil, too. But when you see those rows of lights, it means to you two things. It means that you've made it. It means that you found it. It means for seven hours you were staring off into the darkness, but you finally found it. And secondly, it means this is the path. This is the path of the direction that you need to go. As we celebrate Advent, we celebrate this season 
Because it means that as many of us stare off or live into the darkness, the hope that we have in this season is that we've made it. Is that we have arrived at the light that we've been looking for. And that that light will light our path in the direction that we need to go. Now this might be a weird one, but our text this morning is actually going to be in Genesis. Now hold on a second. You said we were talking about the arrival of Jesus. And I know you Bible scholars out there looking at me right now like, you know Jesus doesn't come till like 75% of the way through the Bible, right? I do know that. But we're going to start in the beginning because I want to paint a big picture, right? Let's go to Genesis. Where am I going to go? Anybody got a guess? One. Chapter 1, verse 1. The book of Genesis says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And then drop down to verse 26. Just humor me. Verses 26 and 27. Then, a whole bunch of stuff happens in between. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Can we keep it real this morning? Is that okay? All right, let me keep it real. I'm glad that I can keep it real with two of you. I feel like most days I'm a pretty good parent. Can, can I say that, right, without you being like, oh, that's too prideful? Listen, I feel like most days, I'm just choosing to not look at my wife at this moment, I feel like most days I'm a pretty good parent. Can we confirm or deny that, Rach? Can we confirm or deny it? Am I, most days, pretty good. All right, she kind of agrees. Most days I'm pretty good. I want to get more specific. I feel like most days I'm a pretty good parent in the daytime. Now, those chuckles that you hear are parents of young children because they know exactly where I'm about to go. I feel like most days I'm a pretty good parent in the daytime. Here are some of the responsibilities that I feel like I do pretty well in the daytime. I feel like sometimes I take them to school. Sometimes Rachel takes them to school. Sometimes I pick them up. Sometimes Rachel picks them up, right? Sometimes I'll take them to dance or whatever the activity is that week. Sometimes I'll get them from said activity uh, throughout the week. Sometimes I will talk to them about their day and search for wisdom and insight from my six and my five-year-old specifically. Sometimes I will, I'll, after talking to them about their day, I'll help them with their homework, which in and of itself is an impressive feat because it's 
really frustrating sometimes, especially when they're learning to read, right? Because they get excited about reading, and they get really far in the sentence, and then there's that one word that they stumble on, but then they stumble on another word, and then another word, and then another word, and eventually you just want to be like, you know what, let me read it. Just let me read it for a second. But you can't because they're the ones learning to, le to read. You, selfish person, already know how to read. This is not about you. It's about them. Some days after I help them with their homework, I love to beat them in Mario Kart. I love that they've started to, like, do this on their own where they, like, play each other. And they've finally, like, just now gotten to the point where Kaylee, at least, like, will get first place sometimes playing against the computer, and she gets really excited and really prideful. And then, the, being the sometimes good dad that I am, I, I, I introduce her to humility. Because I can't let anybody in my house think that they're better at anything like that competitive than me. And sometimes, in the daytime, I'm a really good dad. And then... Darkness falls. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about bedtime. Bedtime sucks. Let me tell you about bedtime. Right? My oldest daughter is the sweetest girl on the face of the planet. You cannot convince me that you will be able to find a sweeter human being than Sarah. Am I exaggerating? Not exaggerating. I got confirmation from my wife. We agreed. Okay? Except at bedtime, there's something, there's like a monster that lives inside of her that comes out at bedtime, and she refuses to listen to anything, to any logic, to any reasoning. If I even hint at the idea that it's time to go to bed, chaos destroys our house. And that's before I even get to the second one let alone the third that's still a baby and requires what we thought was higher maintenance, putting her to bed. But actually, the higher maintenance is the two, but I digress. Bedtime is a nightmare. Patience has run out. And then, God forbid, once they're in bed, they get out of bed. Nobody's a nice person when their kid gets out of bed. Nobody, right? They'll come in at 3 a.m., tap you on the face, Dad, it's me. And there's no loving reception. Go back to bed. That's not nice, but it is what it is. God forbid what happens to them, what ha like what happened a few nights ago to us, one of them gets sick in the middle of the night. Dad. This dude, Kaylee, man, she literally was laying with me for 10 minutes before she was like, Dad, I might be sick. And I'm like, shh, go to sleep. You're not sick. She's like, but I might be. I'm like, shh, no, you're not. She's like, well, I threw up in my bed. <laughs> and I'm like, well, first of all, get off me. <laughs> and second of all, Wrap your blanket up. Don't let any of the puke be on the outside. Put it in a corner. Change your jammies and go back to sleep, which was a really bad solution 
but I just wanted to go back to bed. And so we come up with these terrible ideas to satisfy our immediate desire, don't we? That's what it's like when we live in darkness. We look desperately for the most immediate solution, but not always for the best solution. Because we don't have the patience for the best solution. We have the, self, the selfish need and desire for the immediate one. One piece of parenting advice that I'll definitely give my kids, my daughters, when they start dating, is to find someone who talks to them the same at night as they do in the daytime. And this goes both ways, men and women. But seriously, find someone who speaks to you the same at night as they do in the daytime. Let me say it more explicitly to my nephews. Listen, be the boys, be the men that talk to women the same at night as you do during the daytime. And they're laughing and looking at each other, so I know that they know what I mean. If he only texts you at nighttime, ladies, a lot of us can relate to doing right in the daytime but then letting the darkness set in at night. Amen? Are you all with me on this? I don't need to explain it any further. A lot of us know what it means intimately to do right in the day, but at night let the selfish desires creep in, to let the immediate fleshly needs creep in. And then we live with and we wrestle with this weird dichotomy that feels like it lives inside of us between what we do in the light versus what we do in the darkness. But the hope, that's the theme of the day, week one of Advent, the hope we are reminded of in this season is that we were created for a purpose. And that purpose is to reflect the glory of God. And while the world does its best to make us reflecting God a dang near impossible task, the grace of our Lord is sufficient to include us, hold us high, and to help us make everything I want to speak to you in two parts. Nope, just two. Yep, I, I know what I said. It's just two. And we're going to go quick. Two parts. Part one. This is what I want us to know. We were made for the light. We were made for the light. When you look at Genesis, what does it say in the very, very, very beginning? Verse 1, that's, a thesis, that's what's called a thesis statement, all right? Some of my college students just learned that just now. Oh, it's a summary. Verse 1 of chapter 1 is telling us what it's about to tell us, okay? And then it gets into the specifics. 
It says the earth was without form and it was void. What was there? Darkness. There was darkness, but the Spirit of God was hovering. God was ready to move. But before he would go on to do what we all know he went on to do, he knew that he had to take care of some stuff first. If you ever doubt that God prepares the way for you, read Genesis 1. If you ever doubt that God goes before you and prepares the way for you, read Genesis 1. Because it says that there was nothing but darkness. And God could have introduced us right there. God could have created all of us right there. God could have put us directly, inserted us directly into the story, into darkness. But he didn't. He says, let there be light. He says, let there be light. Can I get ahead of myself a little bit and just give you a cheat code real quick? The light is him. God is the light. He's like, let me put myself in this darkness. And then he looks at the light and he's like, hey, that's good. That's good. says, before I make anything else, let me make sure I have a centerpiece that by which will be the guiding principle for all of creation. Before I do anything else, before I even get man and woman into the mix, let me make sure that I have a way for them to follow. And by it, we are able to see and experience the depth of creation and his glory. And then in verse 4, what does it say right after that? In verse 4, it says, And then God separated the light from the darkness. Which means what? That which is in the light is meant to be kept separate from the darkness. That which is in the light is meant to be in the light. Church, I want to know that you're tracking with me. Say, in the light. That which is meant to be in the light is meant to be apart from darkness. So before we were even created, God made a way for us to be separated from the darkness. And then after that, after all of that, after he set up creation, after he set up the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, after he did all that he did to illuminate all of creation, after all of that, he said, now let me get to the climax. Now let me get to the, to the, to the pinnacle of this creation account. He says, let us, me, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, let us make man and woman in our image. In, in other words, let me make something that is meant to bear my image. In all of creation, in all of that is good, let me make something that when things look at this, what they see is actually me. That 
is our purpose. Can I repackage something that our culture uses? Is that okay without you think that I'm tripping? Like, can I repackage something real quick? That's lit. That's lit. It is a state of being. But it's not one that is induced by other things for recreational use. It, it's being reflective of the goodness of God. That's what we were made for. A lot of us, I know, are searching for a purpose. I know a lot of us are lost in our jobs. A lot of us are lost in some of our relationships. A lot of, our, a lot of us are lost existentially. It's just a state of who we are. Our identities are lost. I get that. So let me simplify it for you. Who you were made to be is, excuse me, is somebody who reflects the goodness of God. Who you were made to be is somebody who reflects the glory of God. Who you were made to be is somebody who reflects the depth and the beauty of God. When people look at you, they should see something incredible about God. And I know right now it might not feel that way. But that which was meant to reflect him was meant to be kept out of darkness. It was not meant to be hidden. And it was not meant to be plagued. It was not meant to deal with the present darkness that we experience in our world. It was not meant to be bogged down by all the things that pile on top of us. It was not meant to experience the darkest of all things, and that is death. What God intended to reflect his goodness was not meant for the darkness that we experience. It was meant to be set apart from those things. But that's not our present reality, is it? It's okay. Keep a real safe zone. That's not our present reality, is it? And we're going to talk a lot more in weeks that come about what happened and what is happening. But the point that I want us to come to to get to part two is that this world has chosen to not live in or by the light. We'll get to more of that later. But this world has not chosen to live in or by the light. Which brings me to a necessary part two. And that is that Jesus came as the light. The hope that we have in this season is found in the fact that Jesus is the light of our world. Fast forward from Genesis a whole debatable amount of years. Yeah, we're not going there today. I know some of you, when I said Genesis, you were like, mm, I don't know if I want to talk about that today. I get it. Me neither. We're skipping that part. Listen, whole debatable amount of years later. There's this, there's this polarizing conversation happening in culture 
I know, I know, I know. It's really hard to put ourselves in that situation. But there's this whole polarizing conversation happening in culture where there's whole groups of people that are like, we should follow the Pharisees. Because what the Pharisees represent is the popular culture of our Jewishness, right? What, what the Pharisees represent is, yeah, it was founded on God's law, but we got a little free with it, right? Like we got a little, we took some liberties with it. And we said that, we said that there is a culture, a regimented culture that people ought to follow. And so there's this whole narrative and following of people that are like, we need to follow the Pharisees. We need to follow culture to a T. We need to do exactly what it is that Pharisaic culture says we ought to do. And then there was this another way, there was another wave of the conversation that says we ought to follow Caesar because after all, our land is owned by Rome, right? After all, we are a part of Rome. After all, it is the greatest empire in all of the known world. After all, we ought to be Roman. We ought to follow Caesar. And I know, I know, I know, I know it's really difficult for us to understand how those two things present polarizing views that, that then drive a divide between people. But just try to imagine what that might be like with me. Try to imagine. There's polarizing views of what people ought to be following. There's division. And then, oh yeah, because of said polarizing views, there's also some systemic oppression going on where actually those who are following Jewish culture closely don't have the same rights or opportunities as, as those in Rome, right? And there's all this stuff, and there's all these debates. And when you read John 7 and 8, you literally get to read the sides of the argument. You get to see that people are, are, are at each other's throats about what we ought to do about this. And then Jesus interrupts, and you're like, oh, thank God, right? Thank God he's about to weigh in. Thank God he's about to settle the debate. Thank God. Jesus, once and for all, settle it. Where are we going? And this is what he says. The Jesus jukiest of all Jesus jukes. He says, I'm the light. He says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm the light. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I see the arguments. I know well what got us to this point. I, I know because I was there all the intimate details of how our world ended up in this position. I know because I was there how stuff was supposed to go and then it didn't go and now we're here. I know why you're looking for me to settle these debates. I know why you're looking and hanging on every word that I say. I know intimately why. I also see the hurt. I see the pain that this stuff causes. 
I see, I see, I see the division that's in our world. I see the oppression that's in our world. I see the outright pain that is caused, the hurt feelings that are going on. I see the awkward holidays because of it all. I see all of it, and I understand deeply the pain of the darkness of this world. But can I tell you something? It's all darkness. People kept waiting for Jesus to weigh in and be the deciding factor, and he did, and he was, by saying, it's all darkness. It's all dark. I'm the light. You want to know how you escape the darkness? He says, you follow me. Jesus came into our world to illuminate the way. The hope that we have in the message today, the hope that we have in the gospel is found in the fact that Jesus came into our world to illuminate the path to where we ought to be going. Jesus' message, Jesus' very presence was a signal of hope for those who had since been lost in the darkness of the world. He keeps it very, very straightforward. He implicitly says, I know the darkness that you are experiencing. We can see him right before this account in John chapter 8, call out the darkness in somebody else's life. Turn four chapters before that, you see him call out the darkness in a Samaritan woman's life, one that she didn't even, he, she didn't even tell him about. He just knew it, right? Jesus knows the darkness that is in our lives. And he's like, you want to escape it? I know you do. I know you've been stumbling around this holiday season looking for a way to escape the darkness that you feel. I know that this darkness has gone on much longer than you originally tended. I know that it even got to a point that you swore to yourself it would never actually get to, and yet here we are. I know the deep darkness that you are caught up in. He's like, you want a way out? You want an escape? Follow me. Follow me. He guarantees it. If you walk with me, if you walk with me, you will escape the darkness. We say it all the time. That's not to say that darkness won't try you. That's not to say that darkness won't try to keep sliding under your feet and in your DMs. But it is to say that if you stay focused on the light that has come to us, if you stay focused on the path that that light lays down, you will escape it for eternity. I, yesterday, uh, this place was um, served as, uh, uh, for a funeral. And I, I know it's a funeral, and so I know it's okay to get emotional. I'm not a robot. Um, but I got unexpectedly emotional at the funeral yesterday. This place was filled, like filled with people that I haven't seen in years. Filled with people that I know in their hearts deeply love and care about Jesus. 
but also a whole lot of people who carry a lot of hurt from the church. And they carry hurt from the church because the church is just people. And people hurt people hurt people, right? And so there's a whole lot of people that I know in their hearts they love Jesus, but they've had a hard time working out their faith. They've had a hard time working out what this looks like because the church hurts sometimes. And the person that we had gathered to celebrate was was a friend of ours. My, the dynamic, the, the nature of my relationship with this person was for a few years, every Sunday night, um, we would meet at Eddie's house. I know y'all remember Eddie. We would meet at Eddie's house. And it started with the three of us, then four of us, then more and more would just meet and just process life. And a lot of the hurt that we were processing at the time was hurt that Eddie and I were both like presently in. And it was hurt from, from church. It was hurt from people in the church. It was hurt from the institution we call church. It was, it was hurt from all of that. And we, and we processed that extensively over a fire. And looking back on it, I got unexpectedly emotional because looking back on it, what I realized that, 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 that my friend's presence, what it represented in my life, was hope of getting on the other side because he also had been deeply hurt by the church. He also had seen some things that you would like to believe don't happen in an assembled people of God. But he had come through it. He had come through it with his faith. He had deconstructed and reconstructed, and he was walking closely with Jesus. And what he embodied in and of and who he was in every breath and who he was on a daily basis was so close to the heart of Jesus. And I didn't think about it that way then, but I certainly thought about it yesterday. What he embodied in those seasons was a beacon of hope that I could get to the other side of the hurt that I was experiencing. And what I saw yesterday and why I got so emotional was I saw so many people who were still in the middle of that hurt, who were still in the middle of the darkness. And the person that I knew as a beacon of light had passed. And his brother said it perfectly yesterday. He said, the world got a little dimmer. A beacon of hope that you can get to the other side of church hurt had gone. For us as a church, what it means for us to embody Jesus during Advent is for us to embody hope in the darkness. What it means for us to embody Jesus in the middle of Advent is for us to go where there is darkness and nothing good and to carry the light that God has put inside of us and put ourselves in that story. And there's a lot of darkness. And if you're in that darkness... And you want to know where the light is. God is the light. And if you know the light, and you want to know what to do with the light, remember, as it's outlined in Genesis 1, we are meant, as we reflect the light, to show 
the way. Let's pray.